Well, if you have a Bible with you, I'd like you to turn back to Isaiah chapter 59 again, please. And this evening, we're going to be looking at this passage. And I think, as was immediately obvious from reading it, this chapter, it analyzes the state and affairs of a nation, which is something that we've been doing this week, isn't it? But it's also a passage of scripture that addresses a far more fundamental question of life that many people are asking themselves. And it's this, why do I not have peace in my life? The way of peace they have not known, verse 8 says. It's a question that's been asked down through the ages. There have been many different ideas, many different theories put forward as to how we can gain this longing that each human has for a peace within their lives. And in our sceptical, modern world, skewed by scientific theory and philosophies that teaches life is, and it always has been, a harsh reality, a constant struggle, such a question can often be dismissed as unrealistic sentimentism. It's escapism. It's for those who are too weak to deal with the fact that life is just a struggle and that's it. But despite many people being taught that, They do believe something to the contrary. They are still looking for this inner peace and satisfaction. And they do it through a variety of methods. Now I'm just going to highlight one. I don't know if any of you have seen um, or heard of a popular movement at the moment. It's called the wellness movement. It's quite a new thing in terms of its name. It's advertised on social media and a lot of modern forms. With people my age it appears to be a big thing. It's It describes itself as a holistic movement. Um, Let me read to you what they say they do. It's an active process of becoming aware of and making choices towards a healthy and a fulfilling life. Wellness is far more than being free from illness. It's a dynamic process of change and growth that helps you develop values, seek meaning and purpose in your life. Um, This is where people, things like this, that people are looking forward to, for peace in their lives. And like I say, that's just one of many examples I could give. So we look at chapter 59. It's a nation who's in trouble and they're looking for peace. As we heard this morning, there are people who were walking in darkness. They knew that their lives were messed up and not what they should be. And we look around in our society and we can see that people know that. It's broken. It's degenerate. Um, This question is deep within them. Why do I not have this peace within my life? Why is everything in chaos? Why is there trouble and conflict all around? Well, in verses 2 to 7, we have the answer to that question. Why is there no peace? It demonstrates some examples. There's a list of sins that were prevalent in Judah at the time of Isaiah the prophet that was preventing the people from seeing this peace. And then in verses 9 to 15, the first part of verse 15, Isaiah, he spells out the consequences of these sins. And there's further confession of even more sins before the Lord. And then in verses 15b, the Lord God, he intervenes. He provides the answer. He provides the solution. He provides the peace that these people are looking for. So the first thing we see in this chapter is that the turmoil in our lives It's not down to any weakness or inability on God's behalf. We join the prophet Isaiah. It's about 700 BC, and it's in the nation of Judah. And there had been a really significant deterioration 
in the behaviour of the people of Judah. And Judah is under the condemnation of God. The fear of the Lord that they once had has now departed. They've turned away from true worship of him. And as a result, their kingdom is in spiritual and moral decline. Uh, The previous chapter, chapter 58, which is linked into chapter 59, it precedes it immediately chronologically as well, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, he's given a mission by God found in the first verse. He's told to cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet, tell my people their transgressions and the house of Jacob their sins. And Isaiah, he pleads with the people of this nation to repent of their sins and to turn back to God. He pleads with them to delight in his ways. And he does this by reminding them of the covenant blessings which God had given them if he obeyed their commands. Blessings such as those found in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 11 to 13, where God swore to his people that if they obeyed his voice, therefore, if you shall keep the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which I command you today to observe them, then it shall come to pass, because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the mercy which he swore to your fathers. And he will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb, the fruit of your land, your grain and your new wine and your oil, the increase of your cattle, the offspring of your flock in the land in which he swore to your fathers to give you. Isaiah is pleading with the people. He's reminding them of what God wants to do for them if they turn from their sins. But then we come to chapter 59. And the mood is a lot more dark. It's a lot more sombre. There's a far more negative assessment of the nation's conduct and future prospects because they've continued to walk in darkness and it was something that the Lord was aware of. And it seems like the people have been questioning God. Why has he not been answering our prayers? Why has he not been pouring out his blessings on our nation? It's obvious from the state of where we are that things aren't as they were in times past. It seems that they have been blaming him for the tumult that was going on around them. And that they come to the conclusion that this silence was down to God either being unable to do anything about it or unwilling. And it's a common question that we hear today, isn't it? People seek answers and problems to all the difficulties in life. And their first question they often ask is, where is God? What's he doing about all the problems in the world around us? And why is he not acting to remove all hardship out of our lives? Well, the answer that God provides for us is found in the first verse. Behold, the Lord's land, behold, the Lord's hand, it's not shortened that it cannot save, nor is his ear heavy that it cannot hear. This silence, this inaction, it's not God's fault. It's not that he's lost some of his power as the supreme creator of the world. It's not that he cannot hear. He does not lack the capacity to respond to their prayers. This silence, as we discover in verse 2, is actually because of a problem on their behalf. Your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. It wasn't a case of God could not hear. It was rather that God would not hear their prayers. And he would not hear their prayers because, as verse 3 says, of their sin, oh, verse 2 says, rather, of their sins, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. 
And it's this sin that separates us from God. It's our sin. It's the sin of the nation. It's the cause of all the turmoil and distress we see around us. They were not in this unstable and this evil society because of some weakness on God's behalf. God's own chosen people were in this situation because they had alienated themselves from him and they had chosen to walk in darkness. And this problem of sin, which prevents us from having a relationship with God, it all stems back to the very beginning of the Bible. When Adam sinned by disobeying the commands of the Lord in the Garden of Eden, when he ate the forbidden fruits, the whole of mankind it was plunged into a new relationship with God. No longer could God have this perfect relationship with a fallen people. There had to be a separation of the deeds of light from the deeds of darkness. And what is more, God had actually forewarned Adam that if he sinned against him and broke his laws, there would be nothing but trouble in his life. In Genesis chapter 2, he says, uh, yeah, Genesis chapter 2, he said to Adam, if you eat of that fruit, you will know nothing but trouble in your life. And then when Adam sinned and broke the command, as we see in Genesis chapter 3, God said to him, by the sweat of your brow, you shall earn your bread. The rest of his life was going to be plagued by difficulties and hardships. Adam was warned that this would be the case. So this misery, this lack of peace, this distance that Judah was experiencing from God was all the fault of mankind. And it's a truth that's still true today. Our iniquities have separated us from God. So in verses 3 to 7, the prophet Isaiah, he kind of reads out a charge sheet where he specifically identifies sins that the nations were guilty of. I'm just going to fly through them very quickly. In verse 3, we're told their hands were defiled with blood. Their fingers were used to commit grossly unfair acts. Their tongues were full of unreasonableness. And verse 4, their voices, they were not used to call for justice or truth, but they were instead given to lies. Their intellect... It was dulled to trusting in empty words. Their minds, they were given over to new evils, new immorality. Their behavior, in verses 5 and 6, was told was destructive. It lured others into a poisonous destruction. Verse 7, it talks about their feet being speedy to commit wrong. They make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Quite simply put... The whole body of this people, because that's the image we're given, it was corrupt, absolutely corrupt, with evil and sin, from head to foot, including their mind and everything. The society was rotten all the way through, corporately, individually, and nationally. And if we have a closer look at these verses, we can see certain characteristics of their behaviour. They were threatening to one another, as verse 3 shows us. It wasn't just a verbal intimidation and deceitful speak. They were quick to turn to violence and assault each other. And the tragic thing is that in this nation, in the public arena, those who God had appointed to rule, the judges who we all have, the um, politicians, they did nothing to protect the weakest in society. It was silence. They were not to be seen standing up for those who could not stand up for themselves. And it is a reminder that in a godless society, it's always the weakest 
and the most vulnerable who suffer the most, those who are poor or those who are strangers in the land, or just the helpless. Nobody was calling for any policies that were good or honourable. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Those with power, they were speaking with empty words. They were only looking to further their own causes and desires. The evidence they presented, it was skewed, it was full of lies. And people soon began to dismiss their words as empty and trivial. I don't think I need to say any more. I think we've heard a lot of that in the last few weeks, really. I don't need to apply that. And in verse 6, the prophet, he paints a fantastic picture of men attempting to cover their sins through the use of propaganda and spin or whatever. Their webs, they were trying to make webs to become garments to cover their wrongdoing. But God sees through spiders' webs. Their deceit, it was obvious for all to see. And in verse 5, they talk about the vipers' eggs and those who eat their eggs die. Their actions, what they did, it was poisonous. If the egg didn't kill you, then the viper that came out of it would. And all this is a perfect picture of what life is like when people do not fear or do not acknowledge God. I'm just going to prove it to you with an example. An atheist is a person who says they do not fear, they do not acknowledge God's existence. And you only have to look at some atheistic regimes in the last hundred years to see what happens when a nation dismisses God and how poisonous and desperate it becomes. Mao's China, Stalin's Russia, Nazi Germany. Between those three regimes, over a hundred million people have been killed by just those three regimes alone. As verse 7 says, their feet run evil and they make haste to shed innocent blood. All restraint and all common decency in society is completely done away with. The common laws of goodness that God has laid in place, they're destroyed, they're removed. It's a bleak, it's an awful picture of what a sinful nation Judah was like at the time. That's why verse 8 says, the way of peace they have not known. It was a terrible place to be. And this sin that they were living in, the sin that we still have today, it still has the same effects. Sin still separates us from God, who is a God of goodness and peace. In Isaiah chapter 57, verse 21, he says, There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Sin is not limited to one ethnic group. It's not limited to a particular religion. The picture of a nation ravaged by sin and corruption is not exclusive to the nation of Judah. If you turn with me to Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 18, those well-known words of the Apostle Paul, he makes reference to this 700 years later as he's writing to the church and the believers at Rome. Romans 3, and I'm just going to read, yeah, verses 10 to 18. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. 
and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I think you can see from that passage where maybe the Apostle Paul got his inspiration from. Same picture 700 years later. And as we look at our society today, as it races away from God's word and God's command, is there any wonder then that people in our society are struggling to find this peace? They do not know what the way of peace is, as God's name has just become little more than a swear word. In our nation today, it's a fact that we have innocent blood being shed on an industrial scale with abortions, children in our school being taught abominations and no one standing up to it in the public arena. Our land, it's ravaged, it's paralysed because it strayed from God. Corruption, um, lack of faith in institutions and authorities eroding almost daily. 2,000 years later, our land is no different from that of Judah. And that's because sin, be it past, present or future, it's the same problem that faces all of us. And the effects of it are the same. If we disregard God, if we disregard his instructions, it will have an impact on us. And it doesn't matter if we think it won't. He will not continue to bless us if we stray from his ways. And in verses 9 to 15, Isaiah, he lists what the consequences are. He says, Therefore justice is far from us because of this sin. Nor does righteousness overtake us. We look for light, but there is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in darkness. The justice and the righteousness that he speaks of, they are part of God's characteristic, or parts of God's character. And God is far from his nation. Light and dark they cannot mix, for where there is light, there cannot be darkness. And the faithful few, the Church of God, who are still in that um, nation, they are acknowledging in this section their nation is spiritually bankrupt. And they were reflecting upon it. And as we can see, they were despairing. They were overwhelmed by the situation they were in. They knew that divine favour had been withdrawn. And no matter what they did, things seemed to get worse. If you look in verses 9, the second part, through to verses 11. We look for light, but there is darkness. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as at twilight. We are as dead men in desolate places. We all growl like bears and moan softly like doves. We look for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. They knew what the root cause of all their problems were. But what could they do about it? From verses 12 to 15, there's even more confession and they acknowledge to God what the sins of the nation are. They, list, they say, for our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and as for our iniquities, we know them. In transgressing and lying against the Lord, and departing from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood, justice is turned back, and righteousness stands afar off. For truth is fallen in the streets, and equity cannot enter. They're confessing their sins, and the sins of the nation. And the first stage back to God, 
is through the acknowledgement and repentance of sin. Notice how the great prophet Isaiah, he was a great man, richly blessed of God, but notice how he also shares in their confession. We, he includes himself in that. He doesn't stand above the people. He doesn't claim no participation in all these acts of sinlessness or a sinless nature. He includes himself in their confessions. And in our fallen human nature, when we are made aware of sin, it's so easy, isn't it, to offer up excuses, blaming others, blaming society, blaming circumstances, blaming every and anything else but ourselves for our own shortcomings. But when we repent, when it's heartfelt, when it's personal, when we bring our sins back to God and confess them, it is the first step in restoring our relationship back to God. And that's what was going on here. The other thing that's very interesting in this section that we must learn as well is in evil times like this, when there seems to be silence from heaven and the nation around grows more and more chaotic, it affects the church. The faith of these people, it seemed to be tested. They were struggling. Why is God not acting? We try this, we try that. It's all pointless. Can God actually do anything? As God's people, we're not immune from everything that occurs outside the walls of this building. The reproach of a nation is also the reproach of the church. And it can often be a sign of our weak faith in an all-powerful God. And so the punishment for national sins is also a punishment that we must bear too. We are part of the nation that is out there. But this is where the passage from being very gloomy, very downhearted, this is where it really becomes joyful. This is where we see the glimmer of light and the hope that is in the Bible. We know that when we confess our sins, God has said he is able and willing to hear our cries. And in verses 15b, the second part, we have um, the response of the Lord. It says, Then the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw there was no man, and wondered that there was no intercessor. He saw there was no man. There was no politician. There was no great statesman. There was no influential moral leader. No scientist, no philosopher. There was nothing that any man could do to cure this problem of sin. People had tried. They must have done. They tried this. They tried that to find the peace with God in their own different ways. But they'd all failed, and God saw that it was all, um, had all failed, and he saw the great predicament they were in. I think the hymn writer, he puts it really well when he said, I tried the broken cisterns, Lord, but ah, the waters had failed. There was no one they could look to for help. And in previous histories, the, in previous history, there had been intercessors. It says, and he wondered there was no intercessors. The Lord God, he'd raised up intercessors. That's another word for mediators. Someone who came with a word from God to deliver it to his people, to plead on God's behalf that they return back to him. And they'd been in dire situations before. They'd been despairing, without hope, in extremely similar situations to this, resigned to their fate, when God had sent mighty men, men like Moses, who led the nation away from slavery, or men like King David, who destroyed the Philistines and brought peace to the nation. Men like Elijah who have pleaded with the um, Israelites to stop Baal worship and come back from their sins. The Lord looked down and he saw that there was no one capable of stemming this tide of evil. And we're told he was bewildered by it. 
That's a, it's a better translation is the word bewildered. Despite all of these past intercessors, all of these people who he had sent on his behalf, the people that had just gone back to the same old ways, the same old sinful ways, and worse, they were like the sow having been washed returning to her own mire. And therefore, his own arm brought salvation to him, and his own righteousness, it sustained him. This is the great turning point. This is the prophecy of a future saviour. This is the prophecy of one who would solve all these problems. God took action and he was going to rectify the problem. God personally intervened. And we moved from this depth of utter despair and bleakness by knowing that there is a divine solution to come. He desired, he wished to deliver his people from the power of sin. And he was going to return them through to his righteousness by his own arm. He was going to do it without any assistance from men. Firstly, though, God had to take action against those transgressors who we have looked at. In verses 17, there's a picture of the warrior God. He's going out into battle to defeat all those who have stood against him. Ephesians 6, Paul takes up this theme again and expounds upon it. And then in verses 18, we see that God punished the sins According to their deeds, accordingly he will repay fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. The coastlands he will fully repay. It's just a reminder that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of God if you're an enemy of him, if you're not at peace with him. But verse 20 tells us more about this Redeemer, this one who will come to save the nation. It says, the Redeemer will come to Zion. And this Redeemer... This is Christ. This is the Messiah. This is the one whose comings to earth we remember at Christmas time as we celebrate his birth. And Jesus, as we well know, he did come to earth. He did come to Zion. He was born into the Jewish nation. He was born in Bethlehem of Nazareth. And when he was born, God's remedy was for sin was announced in the world as he lay in the manger. If you turn to Luke chapter 2 and just keep your finger in here for a while. And look at those well-known words which the angels spoke to the shepherds. They're found in verses 10 to 14. God's remedy, his redeemer, was there. What was he going to do? The angels said to the shepherds, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Saviour who is Christ the Lord, and this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. This Redeemer was going to bring peace to the people, the Son of God who had left his throne, who took on human flesh, he came to save his people from their sins. He came to give them that peace which they have been yearning for. He came to bring the peace, as um, Isaiah says, to those who turn from transgressions in Jacob. And men of faith, men like Simeon, who were waiting for the Lord to act, they saw this little baby and they believed that this was God's Redeemer. 
Luke 2, verses 29 and 32. We looked at these words this morning. Read these words of Simeon. Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. We've also um, recently looked at Zacharias's song. Some of us are reminded of that again on Thursday evening in Luke chapter 1. And in his song of praise about the Messiah who would be born, in verses 79, look what he says about the baby that was to be born. He's there to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And that is the theme of this Christmas time. Light has come into the world, and it's come to bring peace to all who trust in him. If we repent of our sins and have faith in this little baby, the Lord Jesus Christ, it's the only way which we can have this inner peace, this peace which God promises us. The solution, it was prophesied over 700 years beforehand, and it's still the same solution today. Trust in Christ. That's why we celebrate Christmas. It's all about God's personal intervention. It's all about God saying, I will send all that I have. I will intervene personally in order to save my people from their sins. It's the revelation of God's plan of salvation. The revelation that starts all the way back in Genesis 3.15 with the Proto-Evangelius. And it's a permanent plan too. It's not just for the Jewish people, but it's for the Gentiles as well. If you sneak a peek into uh, Isaiah chapter 60, and the title of the chapter is The Gentiles Bless Zion. And it's, Arise, shine, for your light has come, for the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. This saviour wasn't just for the Jewish people. He's there for all. He's there for all who accept Christ as their Lord and their Saviour, and enter into this new covenant with him. And all those who enter into this new covenant with him, they are given this peace which people are yearning for, this peace which passes all understanding. And we have the gift of the Spirit, the one who reassures us, the one who comforts us, the one who tells us that God's promise is true and faithful. Verse 21, it says, As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them. My spirit who is upon you, and my words which I have put in your mouth, shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your descendants, nor from the mouth of your descendants' descendants, says the Lord, for time and evermore. It's a permanent solution to a permanent problem. So what do we see from this chapter? Well, in this chapter we learn about sin. We learn about the effects of sin, And we see, most importantly, what God's answer is to the problem found in the Redeemer who came. And this is actually the gospel message. This is the message of the whole Bible. It's found in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's that we can all come into a right relationship with God and have that inner peace that Jesus came to bring for all who trust in him as Lord and Saviour. It's only once we have trusted in Christ that we can live life knowing why everything is like it is around us, having purpose as we go forward, 
and living our life in a manner that God desires for us. I end with these words um, found in Titus chapter 2 in the 11th and 12th verse. Words that tell us how we should be conducting ourselves in light of this inner peace. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. We ask God that he will give us the grace and help to live like this, to live with the peace that we have within us and to witness to others and to um, witness about this saving grace that can give them the peace that they need. And as we celebrate this Christmas time, we also thank God for the peace which he gave to us through the Lord Jesus Christ and the light which came from heaven to save us all.